This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I've been so looking forward to this interview with Hisham Matar. His new novel is My Friends. It's his first in a minute, but you know his byline, obviously, from the New Yorker piece back in 2013. He went to Libya to look into his father's disappearance. It became a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Return. And part of the conversation we're going to have today is about The Return, as well as My Friends, because as I was reading My Friends, Hisham, I kept going back to moments in The Return, which I had not read in a minute, so I was quite pleased that all of this was surfacing as I read your new novel. But you are, of course, writing about exile and fathers and friendship and memory and all of the things I love to read in your work. So I'm very happy to see you today. I'm delighted to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. But I was describing my friends as glorious to a colleague last night. I was like, no, you don't understand. I read it in a single setting. We're in London. We're in Paris a little bit. It's present day. It follows a friendship of three men over 21 years. And it's dedicated to your former publisher, Susan Camel, who died not that long ago. But I do want to start with Susan, actually, because you and I share her in common. I miss her every day. <laughs> I really do. But the dedication of the book is to her. And her memory helped you write it. And I'm just, I'd like to start there if you don't mind. Susan um, was a very special person in my life. She was my publisher, but she was also my friend. And she did something for me that no one else did. Very lucky. I have some wonderful colleagues, editors, and publishers. And I'm lucky also because I've been working pretty much with the same people right from the start, which I know is very unusual. But Susan did something that is very difficult to describe because she edited me some. It wasn't so much that. It was more that she attended to my to my soul. So I remember, for example, after my first book, In the Country of Men, was published, I went with my wife, Diana, to this island that we love in Italy. We, it was basically heaven. You know, my book, finally, I'm a published author. And, and the book's not quite out yet. And it was that gap. And I went there, and I went to start also on my second book, um, An Attitude of Disappearance. And, uh, and of course, you know, things weren't happening. I was still tired from the first book. and I was naive. I thought I'll just like get cracking on with the second book straight away. And I was sitting in a square feeling quite low and starting to doubt myself. You know, maybe I'm a, a one book wonder. Maybe this dream is finished now. And just at that moment, Susan calls me. I don't know how, I forget how she had my number there, but she called me out of the blue and I kid you not, she exactly said the following thing. She said, darling, what's the matter? And I said, what do you mean? She said, I just felt like there's something wrong. What's going on? <laughs> so I told her. And she said, I don't think you realize how much that book has taken out of you and how much you need to rest. Just have a great time. You know, go to the sea, have fun. And the evenings binge on sex in the city. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so she was she was one of those old fashioned publishers who really knew how to attend to the soul of the writer, not only the page. And she always had a sense that the novel I will write after the return is going to be something quite special. And for that reason, she signed it without 
knowing anything about it. She said, I don't even want a synopsis. That faith carried me through somehow. It was with me when things got a bit tricky with the book, as it always happens, of course. <laughs> you lose your way, try to find your way through. And I, I felt that her presence, her, her memory, um, uh, you know, and that wonderful smile of hers and that incredible laugh, and that way that she always made me feel that, you know, I had it, I had it, whatever it was, I had it. And, you know, it gave me great confidence and strength. So I do owe her a lot. Yeah. This is also your longest book by yeah. far, too. It's yeah. almost twice as long as you usually write. And yeah. it flew. The chapters are short. We cover a great expanse of time. I loved these characters. But I really did feel like My Friends is in conversation with the return in a way that made me feel like My Friends is possibly your most personal novel to date. I mean, you've taken pieces of your experience and put them into the earlier novels. Certainly your debut, which was also shortlisted for The Man Booker, which is now back to being The Booker. But, you know, that's a nice nod to get for a debut. But this book feels different, my friends. Can we talk about that for a second? Yes. I mean, as you say that, I think of something that this wonderful writer who um, I'm honored to call a friend, but somebody that I admired for a long time called David Malouf, not an Australian writer, a wonderful artist, really. And he told me once that after sort of three or four books, he felt that he had work, his work had dug a groove. And his choices were pretty much decided by this groove. He wanted to deepen and advance it, but he didn't feel like he could go in a completely different direction. And I wasn't sure I agreed with him that that was, I mean, I agreed with him that that was his story, of course, but I wasn't sure that was going to be mine. But I do feel that there is a relationship between these books, that each book is somehow makes the next one a little bit more possible, I think. Um, so I feel they're all related, and I feel they're all very, very personal to me. But my friends, I suppose what's unusual about it is that it is a book about contemporaries. All my work, the first three books in The Country of Men, Anatomy of the Disappearance, The Return, were books about the aftermath, living in the aftermath of certain events. You know, the most common thing, being begotten, you know. That I often walk around the street sometimes in certain moods and I look around and I think everyone came in that way. <laughs> and it's a complicated way to be in the world, right? It's a bit rich, but complicated. I think those books are thinking about that question. A month in Siena is, is, is touched by that, but it's turning. It's turning, facing forward. And I think My Friends is very much a book about contemporaries. Of course, contemporaries who are haunted by the past as well, but it's very much about the relationship of, of contemporaries. And so maybe if I wanted to make an argument for it being the most personal, I don't know if it's the most personal, but if it is the most personal, then it might be because it relates to the present a bit more sharply for me, a bit more. Partially to Khaled, our narrator, he makes a home in London. He comes to Edinburgh as a university student. He ends up in London and ends up finishing his education there. I'm staying away from spoilers because this is going to air. We're taping a little bit in advance, but this is going to air the week the book comes out, and I really want people to be able to experience the novel the way I did. But he has sort of an unsteady relationship 
with London, and he ends up living in the same apartment for 40 years, which he is not planning. He's very reserved. Readers will find out some of the reason behind that. But he also has a complicated relationship with London. And I'd sort of like to start there because, you know, this is not your typical, I don't want to say immigrant narrative, but, you know, there is sort of a thread, whether it's in the UK or the United States, where it's like, you come and suddenly, you know, the world opens up and you sort of immediately want to be, I don't know if assimilated is the word I want to use, but you understand where I'm going with yeah, this. Yeah, I do. I do want to talk about Khaled because he is a great character and he's also a little funny without knowing he's funny because he's constantly saying, well, I just lied. I just lied. I just lied. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, and also you know I I mean obviously you know I find I just find found him fascinating and still by the end of the book I couldn't quite understand I couldn't make up my mind you know if one were to judge him that's not necessarily the most interesting thing to do with a fictional character but if one were to judge him I wasn't sure you know which side of the fence I'll come on whether his reluctance is a sign of bravery or the opposite I wasn't sure. But it's his reluctance that I was very interested in. I'm, very, I'm fascinated by characters who are not sure about their relationships, you know, the relationship to their place, to, to where they are. I've also witnessed that. I mean, there's something, you know, there are those immigrants that feel such a profound need to demonstrate their belonging to a place. And those who are perhaps less sure, you know, who are ambivalent about that. But I, I, I think that no matter what kind of experience an immigrant has, the relationship to the place that they've adopted, I've always liked that formulation when people say, my adopted country, because the country's supposed to adopt you, but, so, you know, but also I think it tells you something that you are adopting the country as well. Whatever relationship it is, I think it's always, it's always hovering between those two. It's as if ambivalence is actually possibly the most difficult thing to achieve. And that's what I found interesting about him, is that he's not entirely ambivalent towards London. He has a very passionate relationship to it. But there were moments of ambivalence that I found very, very interesting. And of course, I'm, it's a bit odd what I'm doing, because I'm writing about a, a fictional character that has a relationship to a city that I have an incredibly powerful relationship to. It's where it's my home, it's where I live. And his relationship and mine, although there are moments of overlap, they're they're different, you know. And 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 I wondered as I was writing, yeah, the differences are quite interesting because on some level, his relationship I think represents some of the things that I'm very frightened about, you know. Like what? Ending up alone in a city where you have no roots. That is the fear behind every um, immigrant. Mm. It's also why we are actually pretty stable. All my friends think I'm this international person who's lived here and there. But actually, I've moved much less than most of my friends. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the same you know, place where I'm talking to you from. I've lived here for a very long time. And the place before that was a long time. And a lot of my immigrant friends seem to have the same experience. Here's the thing. I'm not saying that my friends is autofiction. And I don't want listeners mm. to get distracted. It's it's not autofiction. Mm. It feels very intimate, though. The way you tell us the story, the chapters are very short, which mm. is something you've done before. But I 
I think I had, I don't want to say I'd forgotten it, but it's part of the propulsive nature of following this friendship of these yeah. three characters. Mm-hmm. And I kept turning pages because I needed to know what came next. And really, this is a novel about a long-term friendship. But that's really, you have written a very nice novel about a long-term friendship. So it's not as if there are fireworks on every page. There's a lot of interiority. There's a lot of conversation about art and literature. At one point, Hassam, one of the friends, makes a literary map of the neighborhood that Khaled has moved into. And it's sort of T.S. Eliot lived here and Virginia Woolf lived here and Robert Louis Stevenson lived here. And not Joseph Conrad, but I'm I'm missing one of the writers. But Joseph it was sort Conrad of this. Also, and Ford Maddox Ford. Okay. And oh right, okay. Henry James. They're all about a, you know, within a two mile radius of where I'm speaking to you from, which is the area where where Khalid lives. But also, it's also a book that takes place. I mean, I think books are very important for it, but. It's a, it's also a book that takes place at night. You know, it's it's told on a nocturnal walk from the train station to to uh, Shepherd's Bush, this part of town. And I've always found, uh, and obviously there's several books hovering, you know, over this book, hovering over the characters, but also books that were were useful to me, you know, and thinking about. One of them, strangely, because in some ways they don't relate to each other at all, is uh, you know, or at least on a superficial level, uh, is the Arabian Nights. Because the Arabian Nights is also made up of these short uh, chapters that I've always found, I found that relationship interesting between the miniature and the epic, you know, in that book, that you've got all these miniature stories, but actually the bigger story is quite, is quite epic. There's a tone oftentimes to Shahrazad, the way she, you know, th- those little bits in between the stories when she, when she actually speaks her own intentions when she asks when she asks for permission to tell the story for example can do i have your permission to tell you a story it's one of the most radical questions i think in the history of literature because when you ask that question if you say yes you have no idea what's going to happen so the the way that the story can have an effect on us can never be measured so that was sort of in my mind a bit you know all of that and the walk and and all of all of this literary map that he's trying Mm -hmm. to to, to cast on the city. Joseph Conrad has always been a writer who's also been a touchstone for you. You yes. talked about Proust, but Proust, you can feel Proust sort of in the background the way Arabian Nights is in the background. You know, the mm-hmm. level of detail that just creating the epic out of these tiny, tiny moments mm-hmm. of life. Robert Louis Stevenson, though, comes up quite a lot in this book for multiple characters. And I, honestly, I have not thought about Treasure Island in a million years. And can we spend a minute with Robert Louis Stevenson? Because clearly he's someone you sort of walk around with. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I just, I, I, just think he's, I just think he's phenomenal. There's that wonderful book about this moment when he, it's an autobiographical book, when, where he decided, there's a lot of, there's a lot in Robert Louis Stevenson about exile and immigration. There's that very powerful scene in Kidnapped when uh, they're in a ship and the ship is moving close to the coast of one of the Scottish um, highlands. They spot another ship and they can't quite figure out if it's 
you know, enemy or, you know, you know, what kind of ship is it? And there's all that tension. And then when they come close, they can begin to hear the cries of the people on the ship. Mm. And then when they get closer still, they realize it's a ship of immigrants who are heading to the States and they're saying their farewells, you know, and it's such a powerful scene it comes out of nowhere in the book. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Um, and, and so Robert Louis Stevenson is, is one of those incredible writers that were very rooted in a place, but were fascinated by dislocation. And it, it touched his life very deeply, you know, because he also, of course, then goes to America. He doesn't want to follow in the family, in the family business of building the lighthouses. There were great lighthouse engineers. And he takes this ship to, to America. And on the way, he, des he describes it as this, um, the iron country. This ship becomes their iron country afloat in the sea. He had this romantic idea of what an immigrant was, it is, you know. Young, hopeful, strong, brave, all of these things. But instead, he finds all these broken people on the ship, tired, mm. ill, you know, hopeless. But he is very important to my protagonist and to his friend. He's sort of their favorite writer. Um, and he used to live in Shepherd's Bush, so they hold that very dear to them. Gene Rees, too. Yes. It's yeah. been a while since I've seen anyone connect with her on the page the way you do. And it's through, obviously, Khaled. He has quite the connection to Jean Rees. And again, listening to you talk about Robert Louis Stevenson and dislocation and exile, it makes perfect sense. I mean, Sar Wide Saragazzo Sea is still a book that I love and I still pass yes. around. But after leaving Mr. Mackenzie, like the, the sort of the yeah. quartet of novels that she yes. did, when you think about dislocation and exile, like, mm, those are quite great examples. But you've described yourself in other interviews as a failed poet, that you write novels because you couldn't get off the ground, as it were, as a poet. I mean, in my, my, my very early days, I mean, I, I suppose I was trying to find my way, you know, I, I didn't know what I, I had these three ambitions, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a musician, then I wanted to be an architect, and I wanted to be a poet. I didn't, or I didn't have no gift to be, or discipline, whatever it is, to, to be a musician. Uh, I did become an architect. I was all right, you know. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't terribly talented. I was okay, competent, I would say. And I only thought of literature as poetry. I don't know. I think because when I was a kid, that's all I read. So I thought, I thought of literature as poetry. I didn't really get into novels until my early twenties, you know, quite late on. So, so I think. That's why, but I, right now I feel very, I just feel incredibly fortunate because I think the kind of books that I'm interested in writing, you know, my friends, has in it a lot of what I love about architecture. Architecture is very interested, of course, in proportion and structure and rhythm. It's also interested, I mean, architecture is really not bricks and mortar at all. It's, just, it's the volume, it's the emptiness. And, and part of trying to write a book like my friends is to create the, the quality of silence around the book, in the book, that the reader can, can hopefully inhabit. And, but also music, you know. Um, so I, I feel the three loves, poetry, music, and architecture, are somehow I feel like I'm sort of I'm, I'm exercising my passion for them, at least on some level. You know. And having read 
my friends. Yeah, I can see all I can see all of the ways that the different arts flow in to the book that we ultimately get to read. I think the pacing is masterful. I think there are times when you're trying to chart a decades long relationship and you sort of alluded to this at the start of the interview. <laughs> you were like, well, I got into the weeds a little bit without quite saying I got into the weeds a little bit. <laughs> but when you sat down to start My Friends, did you start with Khaled or did you know that it needed to be sort of this triptych of young men and you needed to be able to touch toe in London and Paris and Libya as well? I mean, let's talk about the structure for a second because it is kind of perfect. Thank you. Um, I mean, this is a book that emerged very, very slowly, you know, it took a very long time, it came very, very slowly. So my, the first ever, I thought, the first time that I thought of the idea mm -hmm. was in 2011 with the Arab oh, Spring. I thought okay. it would be interesting because I was so close to lots of people who were involved, not only in Libya, but in Egypt and in Tunisia. And I thought one of the things that is fascinating about what's going on is that human temperament has such a big say in what and how people behave. It's right. not only political ideology or your ethics, whatever it is, you know, your devotion to democracy or, or otherwise. It's, it, there's also a question of human temperament. And I thought the novel is a great place for the human temperament, right? It's a, it's a hard thing to talk about in any situation, but the novel, I think, is very good at it. And I wrote a story about these three friends um, in a cafe that doesn't exist anymore on Holland Park Avenue called Cyrano, which is in the book. They meet. Right. Okay. So I wrote a short story about the three of them in the cafe. And I didn't really know much more about them, but I couldn't get the short story out of my head. And I would, from time to time, hear one of them say something. So I would write it down until I ended up with sort of 150 pages of these sort of, that felt like slides, you know? It would be an image, it would be a sound, it would be an exchange. Sometimes I don't know who said that to whom or mm -hmm. not long ago, I was going through some papers for something I was for a little show that I was doing uh, at, the, at the British Museum uh, around the return. So I was looking at all these scraps um, of papers that I'd kept from back then. Mm -hmm. And I found an envelope from when we lived in Paris in 2003. Okay. Uh, and on the back of the envelope, there is an idea for a book and it's just a couple of lines. And it's basically this book, you know, a book about male friendship. It's been emerging that way. But then when, when I sat down and started properly writing something uh, that now resembles this book was in 2012. I wrote the, the opening uh, of it, that first paragraph. And I thought, yes, I want, I want the novel to start with a party, with a farewell, you know. And I didn't know why, and I didn't know where was he going, and, and why, why does this mean so much to them? And I had no idea about any of these um, answers. Um, and then so I stopped and wrote The Return and went back to it, and then I stopped and wrote A Month in Siena. It's, it's been like this. Mm -hmm. But I think now from this perspective, I think, I think I know the reason why it's taken so long. Which is? Which is that subconsciously, I think I knew that the book has to deal with the events of the Arab Spring uh, because these characters are embroiled in one way or another in the relationship with 
with Libyan politics. I also knew that it's too soon to write about it. I needed some time to pass. I thought that I would need another 10 years, you know, but I was lucky, I think. I was lucky that I managed to cultivate that sort of, I think, to write about something. It's a paradox to write about it, for me at least. I need to be, several things need to be, to have matured, you know, a sense of kind of quiet, unspeakable passion, a passion that I have no words for. The paradox is that you don't actually have words when you start writing. At the same time, a sort of luxurious ambivalence about it, right? Some space, you know, that feels like space. It feels like an opening. And it feels the opposite of obligation. Uh, you know, so I need those two opposing sort of forces to write it. And I just didn't know that I could have cultivated that sort of level of distance from the urgency of those events that I was myself very emotionally and, and circumstantially so embroiled in. You know? uh, I couldn't have written a book like this in 2012 or 2013. Well, especially when I think about the events of the return and the way you tell that story. Yeah. Your father was a critic of Muammar Gaddafi. You were born in the States when he was posted to the UN and mm. he was kidnapped from Cairo by the Libyan government and imprisoned. The presumption is that he died in 1996, correct? I mean, you don't technically yes, don't have, have proof, exact, but... That's the, that's the most likely. That's the most right. Likely. So you go back to Libya for the first time in 33 years in 2012. You go with your mother and your wife. Yeah. and meet relatives. You had mm -hmm. uncles and cousins who had been imprisoned for 21 years. Mm -hmm. were, your, were your cousins imprisoned as long as your uncles? Yes. Okay, yeah. so 21 yeah. years. And you have quite unpleasant dealings with one of the sons of Gaddafi, who was seen quite differently in the UK and apparently had tea at Buckingham Palace and things like that. Fascinating stuff. But I'm not... Sure, when you say you could have written My Friends, it just, it feels like there was a lot that you needed to do with the return before you could even really begin to sit with these characters specifically, with these yes. men. No, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's a strange business, this, um, because on some level you don't really, um, I think, Questions of choice, choice over what it is that you're writing, are limited. Actually, I think I think you I think you have a choice not to write it or to write it. It's not at least for me the choices aren't do I write this or this or this or stuff like that. And I found a letter recently that I'd written to a very good friend of mine when I started writing that piece for the New Yorker that then you know ended up being the opening of of the. And the letter is, uh, I'd forgotten that I'd felt that way, you know. <laughs> the letter was just, it was a panicked letter. You know, I was saying to my friend, I think this is the worst possible thing I could do. Right. I think it's a big mistake, <laughs> you know, to write about this. And in a sense, I knew I was, I had limited choice. And it was, the book was taking me to exactly the places I didn't want to go. Not only taking me there, but taking me there in a certain way, because each book has, at least from 
from my experience, each book has its own character, its own attitude, its own its own mode of moving and thinking. And the return had a very particular voice. It wanted it wanted to really hover patiently over the unbearable, you know, and uh, and attend to it. So it, it wasn't only taking me to the unbearable, it wanted me to be excessively patient with it. And it showed me again and again that if I only could bear it, if I could bear to look at those things or think about those things, for example, if I could bear thinking about something that I, I've worked very hard not to think about, which is when my father was kidnapped and flown back to Libya and he was blindfolded, what was he thinking about? Did they take the blindfolds off? And if they did, what did he see out of the window if he was allowed to? All of these, you know, endless questions. What did the cell smell like? And so on, all these things. What did it feel like? What did he think about? And the book really wanted, that's, that's, that's what the book was interested in. Um, and I found that if I could just bear it, this incredible thing would happen. The material will start to flower. It will start to... Um, produce all of these uh, varieties. So exactly the thing that was horrifying me and making me feel helpless and impotent became charged with the imagination. So I had to actually imagine the possibilities of what might have happened on that airplane, mm -hmm. you know. And it felt the opposite of impotence. It felt it was a very strange exercise, that book. I also felt, and this is this is sort of, because in a sense, there are two people in you. There's the person, you know, the son, the man who's been through all of this, who's just thinking, what? Are you kidding? That's what you want me to think about? I'm going to go, I'd much rather go and sit by the beach. And there's the writer who has this kind of animalistic instinct, can smell it, can smell where, where, the, where, the, where, the, where the target is, you know. And that, that part of me was having a great time, was enlivened and, uh, you know, feeling, you know, I, I would go to bed and can't wait to be up again in the morning to go back. So they had this very strange, almost schizophrenic sort of response to it. But the animalistic side, the writer, knew that it was on the other side of this book, some uh, new register, w w you know, uh, would be found. A kind of, a new kind of playfulness, you know, on the page. A bit more experimental, a bit more, yeah, playful. I think that's definitely what happened. I there's also an element of sort of rage simmering below the narrative of the return for very obvious reasons. Because obviously you're working within a system that is not looking to help you find the information that you need. There are also lost records. I mean, it is just complicated from jump, let alone the emotional connection to a place that is is it home in a way? I mean, do you feel like there's still a piece? You grew up in Benghazi and then spent time in Tripoli, or do I have it backwards? You grew up in Tripoli and spent time in Benghazi. No, no, it was always Tripoli. I have a love affair with Benghazi, but but Tripoli is where, is where I, I grew up. It's a beautiful place. But, you know, I only really lived there between the ages of three and, and eight and a half. Okay, so you were very... Any, no, any normal person would be over it by now. <laughs> But it had such a profound effect on me, you know, both for the obvious reasons, but also sensually. You know, it's a very sensual place. 
uh, the light, the smells, the, you know, and I had a very, very happy time there. I feel I'm in a different place. I feel I am all the things that I was before, but I'm also in a different place. I have a slight bone to pick with a kind of myth, I think. Uh, it's a very well-intentioned myth, which is the myth of self-invention. You know, I, I owe a lot to it. I think it's wonderful that we live in an age that we all feel we can self-invent. I think it's great, but I also believe in the stain of history. You know, I also believe that we are we have in us everything that has happened, and that's one of the things that is that is incredibly fascinating about this strange thing of being a human being. We have in us the 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 memory of everything that has happened before us, but also, of course, uh, us now, yeah. But for me, questions of home now have become much more specific. Okay. They're actually quite simple isn't the, the right word, but I think my home is, is, is literally this place, you know. It's literally my bed and my desk, and my home is my wife and my friends and my family. And... Uh, the tree outside of the window that now I've seen change over so many seasons. You know, mm -hmm. it's these kind of very specific things. And I've noticed it's changed something. I mean, you might think this is silly, but it's changed something about the kind of existential reality, you know, because I I'm usually when I'm walking, very few people smile at me. Right? They're not unkind, but they don't smile at me. Um, and I've noticed over the last sort of five, six, seven years, more people smile at me <laughs> in the street. And I think it's connected to this. I think it's because they must feel on some level that I have surrendered, you know, to the present. And maybe before they felt, oh, this guy's just passing through. <laughs> Why smile? Why waste a smile on someone that's just passing through? <laughs> and that you're part of the place now. Yeah, I mean... London feels like its own character in my friends. I mean, we have we have a bit of a start in Edinburgh, yeah. but London really does feel mm. like it grounds all of the characters. And there's one friendship that sort of forms in Paris. Yeah. But London gives your characters space to roam in a way that I'm not sure they would have in New York. And certainly not in Los Angeles, because, you know, everyone's in a car in Los Angeles. But this idea that you can sort of meander and think, you have a lot of characters who are like, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to take the bus. I'm not going to take a cab. I'm not going to take the subway. I'm just going to walk for a bit. Yeah. And I do think that seeps through the storytelling, even when we're in a flashback piece or even when characters are revealed. There is sort of a languidness to the prose. It's very sort of like, well, here we are. And let's be here. And that was not my experience of reading The Return. And that was not my experience of reading In the Country of Men or Anatomy of a Disappearance. It's, it is a really different voice for you in some ways. Yes. No, I think, I think, I think you're right. There's a, there's a tiny bit of it in A Month in Siena, you know, this in, right. in the sense of wanting to be in it sort of being contained by a place, you know. I've always thought it was fascinating how, you know, when you sit at home and you open a book, and you are, if things light up between you and the book, you are transported, and you feel as you're reading that you're moving. 
yet you're not moving at all. You're stationary. You're in the same place. So uh, that very, very simple tension between those two has always fascinated me. Um, and I thought to have a book narrated on a walk as you are moving through a city can allow me some opportunity to to mess a bit with with this tension but but also that as you move into the city in a city you realize that you are actually literally contained by it that the cities that we live in are both the places that we make our home but they're also the mentality they're, they are a mentality and if we imagine like if we imagine a situation where there are no cities and somebody wants to make a case for them you know it is exactly that, I think. I think. For me, that is the most powerful case for a city. Of course, outside of all of the obvious important things to do with economics, and the city can become a kind of muscle. It ha- becomes a consciousness. It becomes a mentality. And Khalid, my, my protagonist, doesn't claim for a minute to have captured that or, or had conquered it, you know, um, in the way that, say, Frank Sinatra wished to conquer New York. You know, that sort of feeling that we all feel when we are in a place. It's a lovely thing. He is, he is, he is actually quite committed to remaining a kind of shadow in it and using it as a, a, you know, a, resting, a resting place, um, which, which really, to me, I found so interesting and also part of that sort of what frightens me. Like, that also, that also frightens me. You give Khaled a line where he says, you know, I've been trying to be at home in London for three decades, but London really wants classification. It really wants us to be, and I'm paraphrasing you, but that, you know, we really need to have sort of names put on things and all of this kind of thing. And here he is being, I don't want to say dreamy, dreamy's not quite the word, but he, he moves through the world in a way that I'm not sure I've experienced with a fictional character before. He's just, he's of the world, but not. And I don't mean that in the sort of ghostly zombie sense, certainly, but he's he's a fascinating dude. (laughs) That's the best way to describe him. He's just a fascinating dude. He's got one foot in and one foot out the door. Yes, and and we meet him at a particularly heightened moment of solitude. You know, where he's just said goodbye to his lifelong friend or a friend that has been incredibly intimate and who is now going, taking the train to Paris or from Paris, moving to San Francisco and in a way that feels like a final party that they might never see each other again. And the other friend in the trio that they used to form, uh, Mustafa, has gone back to, to Libya. And he thinks of them as one receding into the past and the other one moving into the future. And, and he sort of remains in the present, pretty much alone, you know, with a few uh, strong relationships, but pretty much alone. And the walk is, is where that, that opens up. Mm-hmm. All of that solitude opens up, and he wants to sort of... Um, it felt like a moment that absorbed, can absorb everything. And we, we feel that. I mean, I feel that actually... That's why I thought, I think farewells are very interesting. You know, that's why I wanted the novel to open up with a farewell. If you've ever taken somebody that you really love and can't bear to say goodbye to, to an airport or, you know, train station or their car and they're driving off. And all of those emotions building up to it where you really genuinely can't bear it. 
And then the moment they leave, something strange happens, you know, a kind of opening, as if the moment expands in some way. And that's, that, that's where we find him. And that's, that's the moment that then absorbs all, everything that has had happened in the past, but also absorbs for him. It's the moment where he can really take account of his, the quality of his presence in London, which is why he walks through it, you know, taking detours through places that have meant something to them in the past. And for a while, I, I tested the novel, you know, I tested it. I would, I would say, well, what can, else can happen in that walk? You know, does, does anyone talk to him? You know, do you have an encounter with anyone? And it, it didn't work, you know, it, it, a walk where he really doesn't speak to him, you know. Um, and I think that's something else that happens in cities. You know, I can leave, I often leave my place and I'd go take the bus and I'd go across town and I'd get off and I'd walk into the National Gallery and I'd go and stand in front of the painting, having not spoken to anyone. You know. I didn't need to give, to explain myself to anyone. And so he travels those kind of journeys, yeah. It's really expansive, this novel. And we've got different kinds of fathers and we've got different kinds of families and we've got such a variety of humanity with such a tight cast. Even when you were taking me as the reader back in time to certain moments. I never felt like I had lost sight of where we were in the present. And that's really hard to do. It's really, really hard to do a flashback well, but also to not get lost in that moment and forget who's telling you the story or why they're telling you the that's story. That's very interesting you should say that. It's very interesting you should say that, particularly in, in going back to what you said initially about the return. Right. Because that's a lesson I really, the, the return, you know, you write your books, but your books also write you in some way mm -hmm. and teach you things. And that book really taught me something about how to manage time, mm -hmm. which is something I've always been interested in because it's not in an abstract sense. It's just my experience. I think we all experience that. We are in a particular moment, yet sometimes some other door opens up and we remember something and it sits right next to this moment and nudges it a bit, you know, have always been fascinated by that, you know, that, and in the return, there were paragraphs I remember that I sort of drew up, you know, because they start at one moment in time, they go back, and then they end up in a completely different moment in time. And I wanted to do it in such a way that it felt effortless to the, to the reader, you know. And so that was a real masterclass of how to man manage time. And I, and I, I wanted, I felt I'm not, you know, this is something I want to keep developing and my friends definitely it's a book that tells a history of about three decades told in two hours the book actually only takes about two hours it did take me a minute longer than but i really i'm not kidding when i say oh, i, I read sorry, it in a single setting I, yeah no no sorry i didn't mean it takes two hours to read no that would no, be, no 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 i know the walk itself i just yeah. want to be clear for listeners yeah, yeah. no i'm a very very <laughs> slow reader that's any point i don't think I put it down from the first page. Actually, I know I didn't put it down from the first page because at one point there were plans for dinner were being discussed. And I was just like, let me know what the plan is later. That's okay. I'll be. Oh, just... that really, really, that really touched right? me. Right? I, I, I think, you know, part of what I was hoping to do is really have that sort of, you know, transporting experience of reading a book and really forgetting time. I'm the recipient of that pleasure over and over, and I wanted to replicate it. 
Time and interiority are the two things that the novel can deliver in a way that other art forms can't. Love the movies, television can be great, but if you're really going to sit with characters and play with time and really get into the the heads of your characters, you need a novel to be able to do that. I mean, I love a short story. I do, I do, I do. But there is something really deeply satisfying about being able to sit with a novel, lose yourself in time, in space, in another person's story, and come out on the other side and just go like, you know, that was great. I really want to do it again. <laughs> really yeah, no, want to do that no, again. I agree, I, I agree with you. It also, it also asks of you something else that is very unusual. It asks of you to be a, co, a co-writer. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of fill in the gaps of somebody describing a building. You have to sort of help build it. The solitary art of, of writing is actually not solitary at all. It's very collaborative. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, and, and that's what I meant earlier on by the spaces, you know, creating the, the sort of spaces that are hospitable to a, another person's imagination, I think is, is part of what fascinates me about it. It goes back to interiority. It goes back to time. All, silence gets built out of those things, mm. right? Or maybe we could say silence feeds the interiority and it feeds the sense of time. But you, I don't think you can separate those three things, mm. or at least in the novels that I love. I can't separate those three things. And I realized this was going to happen. We're, we're getting close to <laughs> markers of different kinds of time. Do you miss these characters now that you're sort of done with them? No, I don't. I don't feel that because they're not obviously they're not real, right? Yeah, no, I understand. Um, no, I understand that I, completely. But I they feel, represent something for you, and they do. And I feel sometimes I catch myself remembering a detail, but I don't just remember it the way you remember a fact. I remember it. I remember it emotionally. I feel you know sometimes I pass a place, and I was walking with my mother the other day down uh, a street where where Khalid walks down, and something happens in that. I felt I wanted to share it with her in the way as if I'm sharing something that actually didn't happen with, right. with someone, you know. And and then I stopped myself because I thought that's ridiculous. That's not gonna be That's like my character happened to be walking down here. So what? What's interesting about that? <laughs> but I, I'm pausing because I don't want this to come across as uh, being sort of uh, I don't know, immodest or something. But the thing that I'm just excited about is to have it sort of do its work uh have it have it connect with readers that to me is a pleasure that uh, uh, over the years and over the books has become really a, a, a genuine delight because the surprises that come up and the fact that you really feel the book becomes theirs you know it's such a magical thing and uh, feels like a huge gift and uh, so that that's that when I think of my friends, I think, um, yeah, I just wonder, I wonder what people will make of it. Uh, and I don't mean only, of course, it's important. I don't mean only reviewers and so on, but I mean in the, in the, in the quiet, silent rooms, you know. I, I get, I get uh, from time to time, I get letters from readers, and they, that opens a, a window into that. And it's just, to me, always a marvel. It's just always a marvel. I'm stunned that someone had read it. <laughs> Even though, of course, I know people have read it, I'm stunned. <laughs> I think that's one of the best things about reading, though, that we get to build this community, that we get to build and connect. I mean, going back to your architecture reference, yeah, maybe you were not 
the most inspired architect, but you do have to architect a novel, right? Like you yeah. do have to build a novel, you build a world, you build your characters. I really, I'm not kidding when I say this book is glorious. It is just, it is so satisfying to read this book. And it fly, my friends just flies. And I think, you know, exile is always going to be one of those subjects that people just never get tired of exploring. It's a really fundamental disruption, right? And I think we all relate to it, even if um, we have um, the, the good grace of, of living in the same place in a generation of generations. Because I think this moment particularly is a moment of great dislocation. I think a mm. lot of us feel that we are being separated from nature, that we are being separated from a stable idea of a future. And I think also politically, the, the lines connecting the populace to government seem also to be very fragile and uh, strained. And so I think these, these you know, I, I think it is a moment where we are thinking a lot about our, our relationship to the places and the societies that we, we inhabit, you know, wanting to create deeper connections or, or yeah. So uh, maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons why exile continues to be an abiding concern. Oh, Hisham, that seems like a really great place to end because exile is something that I think all of us contemplate more than maybe some of us might admit. We'll see. Anyway, I'm really excited for readers to get their hands on my friends. Thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.